Space Time for Springers by Fritz Lieber Gummitch was a super kitten, as he knew very well, with an IQ of about 160. Of course, he didn't talk, but everyone knows that IQ tests based on language ability are very one-sided. Besides, he would talk as soon as they started setting a place for him at table and pouring him coffee. Ashurbanipal and Cleopatra ate horse meat from pans on the floor, and they didn't talk. Baby dined in his crib on milk from a bottle, and he didn't talk. Sissy sat at the table, but they didn't pour her coffee, and she didn't talk. Not one word. Father and mother, whom Gummitch had nicknamed Old Horse Meat and Kitty Come Here, sat at table and poured each other coffee, and they did talk. QED. Meanwhile, he would get by very well on thought projection and intuitive understanding of all human speech, not even to mention cat patois, which almost any civilized animal could play by ear. The dramatic monologues and Socratic dialogues, the quiz and panel show appearances, the philological expedition to darkest Africa, where he would uncover the real truth behind lions and tigers, the exploration of the outer planets, all of these could wait. The same went for the books for which he was ceaselessly accumulating material. The Encyclopedia of Odors, Anthropofeline Psychology, Invisible Signs and Secret Wonders, Space Time for Springers, Slit Eyes Look at Life, etc. For the present, it was enough to live existence to the hilt and soak up knowledge missing no experience proper to his age level to rush about with tail aflame. So to all outward appearances, Gummitch was just a vividly normal kitten, as shown by the succession of nicknames he bore along the magic path that led from blue-eyed infancy toward puberty. Little One, Squawker, Portly, Bumble, for purring, not clumsiness, Old Starved to Death, Fierceau, Lover Boy, Affection, not Sex, Spook, and Catnick. Of these, only the last perhaps requires further explanation. The Russians had just sent Mutnik up after Sputnik, so that when one evening Gummitch streaked three times across the firmament of the living room floor in the same direction, past the fixed stars of the humans and the comparatively slow-moving heavenly bodies of the two older cats, and Kitty Come Here quoted the line from Keats, Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. It was inevitable that old Horsemeat would say, Ah, Catnick! The new name lasted all of three days to be replaced by Gummitch which showed signs of becoming permanent. The little cat was on the verge of truly growing up, at least so Gummitch overheard Old Horsemeat comment to Kitty Come Here. A few short weeks, Old Horsemeat said, and Gummitch's fiery flesh would harden, his slim neck thicken, the electricity vanish from everything but his fur, and all his delightful kittenish qualities rapidly give way to the earthbound single-mindedness of a tom. They'd be lucky, Old Horsemeat concluded, if he didn't turn completely surly like Ashurbanipal. Gummitch listened to these predictions with gay unconcern and with secret amusement from his vantage point of superior knowledge, in the same spirit that he accepted so many phases of his outwardly conventional existence. The murderous sidelong looks he got from Ashurbanipal and Cleopatra as he devoured his own horse meat from his own little tin pan, because they sometimes were given canned cat food, but he never. The stark idiocy of Baby, who didn't know the difference between a live cat and a stuffed teddy bear, and who tried to cover up his ignorance by making goo-goo noises and poking indiscriminately at all eyes. The far more serious but cleverly hidden maliciousness of Sissy, who had to be watched out for warily, especially when you were alone, and whose retarded, even warped development, Gummitch knew, was Old Horsemeat and Kitty Come Here's deepest, most secret worry, more of Sissy and her evil ways soon. 
The limited intellect of Kitty Come Here, who, despite the amounts of coffee she drank, was quite as feather-brained as kittens are supposed to be, and who firmly believed, for example, that kittens operated in the same space-time as other beings. That to get from here to there they had to cross the space between, and similar fallacies. The mental stodginess of even old horsemeat, who, although he understood quite a bit of the secret doctrine and talked intelligently to Gummidge when they were alone, nevertheless suffered from the limitations of his status. A rather nice old god, but a maddeningly slow-witted one. But Gummidge could easily forgive all this massed inadequacy and downright brutishness in his felino-human household, because he was aware that he alone knew the real truth about himself and about other kittens and babies as well. The truth which was hidden from weaker minds, the truth that was as intrinsically incredible as the germ theory of disease or the origin of the whole great universe in the explosion of a single atom. As a baby kitten, Gummitch had believed that old horsemeat's two hands were hairless kittens permanently attached to the ends of old horsemeat's arms, but having an independent life of their own. How he had hated and loved those two five-legged sallow monsters, his first playmates, comforters, and battle opponents. Well, even that fantastic, discarded notion was but a trifling fancy compared to the real truth about himself. The forehead of Zeus split open to give birth to Minerva. Gummitch had been born from the waistfold of a dirty old terry cloth bathrobe, old horsemeat's basic garment. The kitten was intuitively certain of it and had proved it to himself as well as any Descartes or Aristotle. In a kitten-sized tuck of that ancient bathrobe, the atoms of his body had gathered and quickened into life. His earliest memories were of snoozing, wrapped in terry cloth, warmed by old horsemeat's heat. Old horsemeat and Kitty Come Here were his true parents. The other theory of his origin, the one he heard Old Horsemeat and Kitty Come Here recount from time to time, that he had been the only surviving kitten of a litter abandoned next door, that he had had the shakes from vitamin deficiency and lost the tip of his tail and the hair on his paws and had to be nursed back to life and health with warm yellowish milk and vitamins fed from an eyedropper. That other theory was just one of those rationalizations with which mysterious nature cloaks the birth of heroes, perhaps wisely veiling the truth from minds unable to bear it, a rationalization as false as Kitty Come Here and Old Horsebag's touching belief that Sissy and Baby were their children rather than the cubs of Ashurbanipal and Cleopatra. The day that Gummidge had discovered, by pure intuition, the secret of his birth, he had been filled with a wild, instant excitement. He had only kept it from tearing him to pieces by rushing out to the kitchen and striking and devouring a fried scallop, torturing it fiendishly first for 20 minutes. And the secret of his birth was only the beginning. His intellectual faculties aroused, Gummitch had two days later intuited a further and greater secret. Since he was the child of humans, he would, upon reaching the maturation date of which Old Horsemeat had spoken, turn not into a sullen tom, but into a godlike human youth with reddish-golden hair the color of his present fur. He would be poured coffee, and he would instantly be able to talk, probably in all languages, while Sissy, how clear it was now, would, at approximately the same time, shrink and fur out into a sharp-clawed and vicious she-cat, dark as her hair, sex and self-love her only concerns, fit harem male for Cleopatra, concubine to Ashurbanipal. Exactly the same was true, Gummitch realized at once, for all kittens and babies, all humans and cats, wherever they might dwell. Metamorphosis was as much a part of the fabric of their lives as it was of the insects. It was also the basic fact underlying all legends of werewolves, vampires, and witches' familiars. If you just read your mind of preconceived notions, Gummidge told himself, it was all very logical. 
Babies were stupid, fumbling, vindictive creatures without reason or speech. What could be more natural than that they should grow up into mute, sullen, selfish beasts bent only on rapine and reproduction? While kittens were quick, sensitive, subtle, supremely alive. What other destiny were they possibly fitted for except to become the deft, word-speaking, book-writing, music-making, meat-getting, and dispensing masters of the world? To dwell on the physical differences, to point out that kittens and men, babies and cats, are rather unlike in appearance and size, would be to miss the forest for the trees. Very much as if an entomologist should proclaim metamorphosis a myth because his microscope failed to discover the wings of a butterfly in a caterpillar's slime or a golden beetle in a grub. Nevertheless, it was such a mind-staggering truth, Gummich realized at the same time, that it was easy to understand why humans, cats, babies, and perhaps most kittens were quite unaware of it. How to safely explain to a butterfly that he was once a hairy crawler, or to a doll larva that he will one day be a walking jewel? No, in such situ No, in such situations the delicate minds of man and feline kind are guarded by a merciful mass amnesia, such as Velikovsky has explained, prevents us from recalling that in historical times the Earth was catastrophically bumped by the planet Venus, operating in the manner of a comet before settling down, with a cosmic sigh of relief, surely, into its present orbit. This conclusion was confirmed when Gummich, in the first fever of illumination, tried to communicate his great insight to others. He told it in cat patois, as well as that limited jargon permitted, to Ashurbanipal and Cleopatra, and even, on the off chance, to Sissy and Baby. They showed no interest whatever, except that Sissy took advantage of his unguarded preoccupation to stab him with a fork. Later, alone with old horsemeat, he projected the great new thoughts, staring with solemn yellow eyes at the old god, but the latter grew markedly nervous and even showed signs of real fear, so Gummich desisted. You'd have sworn he was trying to put across something as deep as the Einstein theory or the doctrine of original sin, old horsemeat later told Kitty come here. But Gummich was a man now in all but form, the kitten reminded himself after these failures, and it was part of his destiny to shoulder secrets alone when necessary. He wondered if the general amnesia would affect him when he metamorphosed. There was no sure answer to this question, but he hoped not, and sometimes felt that there was reason for his hopes. Perhaps he would be the first true kitten man, speaking from a wisdom that had no locked doors in it. Once, he was tempted to speed up the process by the use of drugs. Left alone in the kitchen, he sprang onto the table and started to lap up the black puddle in the bottom of Old Horsemeat's coffee cup. It tasted foul and poisonous, and he withdrew with a little snarl, frightened as well as revolted. The dark beverage would not work its tongue-loosening magic, he realized, except at the proper time and with the proper ceremonies. Incantations might be necessary as well. Certainly, unlawful tasting was highly dangerous. The futility of expecting coffee to work any wonders by itself was further demonstrated to Gummich when Kitty Come Here, wordlessly badgered by Sissy, gave a few spoonfuls to the little girl, liberally lacing it first with milk and sugar. Of course, Gummich knew by now that Sissy was destined shortly to turn into a cat and that no amount of coffee would ever make her talk but it was nevertheless instructive to see how she spat out the first mouthful, drooling a lot of saliva after it, and dashed the cup and its contents at the chest of Kitty Come Here. Gummich continued to feel a great deal of sympathy for his parents and their worries about Sissy, and he longed for the day when he would metamorphose and be able, as an acknowledged man-child, truly to console them. It was heartbreaking to see how they each tried to coax the little girl to talk, always attempting it while the other was absent, 
how they seized on each accidentally word-like note in the few sounds she uttered and repeated it back to her hopefully, how they were more and more possessed by fears not so much of her retarded, they thought, development as of her increasingly obvious maliciousness, which was directed chiefly at Baby, though the two cats and Gummidge bore their share. Once, she had caught Baby alone in his crib and used the sharp corner of a block to dot Baby's large-domed, lightly-downed head with triangular red marks. Kitty come here had discovered her doing it, but the woman's first action had been to rub Baby's head to obliterate the marks so that old horse meat wouldn't see them. That was the night Kitty come here hid the abnormal psychology books. Gummich understood very well that Kitty come here and old horse meat, honestly believing themselves to be Sissy's parents, felt just as deeply about her as if they actually were, and he did what little he could under the present circumstances to help them. He had recently come to feel a quite independent affection for Baby, the miserable little proto-cat was so completely stupid and defenseless, and so he unofficially constituted himself the creature's guardian, taking his naps behind the door of the nursery and dashing about noisily whenever Sissy showed up. In any case, he realized that as a potentially adult member of a felino-human household, he had his natural responsibilities. Accepting responsibilities was as much a part of a kitten's life, Gummidge told himself, as shouldering unshareable intuitions and secrets, the number of which continued to grow from day to day. There was, for instance, the affair of the squirrel mirror. Gummidge had early solved the mystery of ordinary mirrors and the creatures that appeared in them, a little observation and sniffing, and one attempt to get behind the heavy wall job in the living room had convinced him that mirror beings were insubstantial, or at least hermetically sealed into their other world, probably creatures of pure spirit, harmless imitative ghosts, including the silent gummage double who touched paws with him so softly, yet so coldly. Just the same, Gummidge had let his imagination play with what would happen if one day, while looking into the mirror world, he should let loose his grip on his spirit and let it slip into the Gummidge double while the other's spirit slipped into his body, if, in short, he should change places with the scentless ghost kitten. Being doomed to a life consisting wholly of imitation and completely lacking in opportunities to show initiative, except for behind-the-scenes judgment and speed needed in rushing from one mirror to another to keep up with the real Gummidge, would be sickeningly dull, Gummidge decided, and he resolved to keep a tight hold on his spirit at all times in the vicinity of mirrors. But that isn't telling about the squirrel mirror. One morning, Gummidge was peering out the front bedroom window that overlooked the roof of the porch. Gummidge had already classified windows as semi-mirrors, having two kinds of space on the other side, the mirror world and that harsh region filled with mysterious and dangerously organized-sounding noises called the outer world, into which grown-up humans reluctantly ventured at intervals, donning special garments for the purpose and shouting loud farewells that were meant to be reassuring but achieved just the opposite effect. The coexistence of two kinds of space presented no paradox to the kitten, who carried in his mind the 27-chapter outline of Space Time for Springers. Indeed, it constituted one of the minor themes of his book. This morning, the bedroom was dark, and the outer world was dull and sunless, so the mirror world was unusually difficult to see. Gummidge was just lifting his face toward it, nose twitching, his front paws on the sill, when what should rear up on the other side, exactly in the space that the Gummidge double normally occupied, but a dirty brown, narrow-visaged image with savagely low forehead, dark evil wall eyes, and a huge jaw filled with shovel-like teeth. Gummitch was enormously startled and hideously frightened. 
He felt his grip on the spirit go limp, and without volition, he teleported himself three yards to the rear, making use of that faculty for cutting corners in space-time, traveling by space-warp, in fact, which was one of his powers that Kitty Come Here refused to believe in, and that even Old Horsemeat accepted only on faith. Then, not losing a moment, he picked himself up by his furry seat, swung himself around, dashed downstairs at top speed, sprang to the top of the sofa, and stared for several seconds at the gummage double in the wall mirror, not relaxing a muscle strand until he was completely convinced that he was still himself and had not been transformed into the nasty brown apparition that had confronted him in the bedroom window. "'Now what do you suppose brought that on?' old horse meat asked Kitty come here. Later, Gummidge learned that what he had seen had been a squirrel, a savage, nut-hunting being belonging wholly to the outer world, except for forays into attics, and not at all to the mirror one. Nevertheless, he kept a vivid memory of his profound momentary conviction that the squirrel had taken the Gummidge double's place and been about to take his own. He shuddered to think what would have happened if the squirrel had been actively interested in trading spirits with him. Apparently mirrors, and mirror situations, just as he had always feared, were highly conducive to spirit transfers. He filed the information away in the memory cabinet reserved for dangerous, exciting, and possibly useful information, such as plans for climbing straight-up glass, diamond-tipped claws, and flying higher than the trees. These days, his thought cabinets were beginning to feel filled to bursting, and he could hardly wait for the moment when the true, rich taste of coffee, lawfully drunk, would permit him to speak. He pictured the scene in detail, the family gathered in conclave at the kitchen table, Asher Banapole and Cleopatra respectfully watching from floor level, himself sitting erect on chair with paws, or would they be hands, lightly touching his cup of thin china, while old horse meat poured the thin black steaming stream. He knew the great transformation must be close at hand. At the same time, he knew that the other critical situation in the household was worsening swiftly. Sissy, he realized now, was far older than Baby, and should long ago have undergone her own somewhat less glamorous, though equally necessary, transformation. The first tin of raw horse meat could hardly be as exciting as the first cup of coffee. Her time was long overdue. Gummidge found increasing horror in this mute vampirish being inhabiting the body of a rapidly growing girl, though inwardly equipped to be nothing but a most bloodthirsty she-cat. How dreadful to think of old Horsemeat and Kitty come here having to care all their lives for such a monster. Gummidge told himself that if any opportunity for alleviating his parents' misery should ever present itself to him, he would not hesitate for an instant. Then, one night, when the sense of change was so burstingly strong in him that he knew tomorrow must be the day, but when the house was also exceptionally unquiet with boards creaking and snapping, taps a-drip, and curtains mysteriously rustling at closed windows, so that it was clear that the many spirit worlds, including the mirror one, must be pressing very close, the opportunity came to Gummidge. Kitty Come Here and Old Horsemeat had fallen into especially sound, drugged sleeps, the former with a bad cold, the latter with one unhappy highball too many. Gummidge knew he had been brooding about Sissy. Baby slept too, though with uneasy whimperings and joggings. Moonlight shone full on his crib, past a window shade which had worryingly rolled itself up without human or feline agency. Gummidge kept vigil under the crib with eyes closed, but with wildly excited mind pressing outward to every boundary of the house and even stretching here and there into the outer world. On this night of all nights, sleep was unthinkable. Then suddenly he became aware of footsteps. 
Footsteps so soft they must, he thought, be Cleopatra's. No, softer than that. So soft they might be those of the gummage double escaped from the mirror world at last and padding up toward him through the darkened halls. A ribbon of fur rose along his spine. Then into the nursery, Sissy came prowling. She looked slim as an Egyptian princess in her long, thin yellow nightgown and as sure of herself, but the cat was very strong in her tonight, from the flat, intent eyes to the dainty canine teeth slightly bared. One look at her now would have sent Kitty come here running for the telephone number she kept hidden, the telephone number of the special doctor, and Gummidge realized he was witnessing a monstrous suspension of natural law in that this being should be able to exist for a moment without growing fur and changing round pupils for slit eyes. He retreated to the darkest corner of the room, suppressing a snarl. Sissy approached the crib and leaned over Baby in the moonlight, keeping her shadow off him. For a while she gloated. Then she began to softly scratch his cheek with a long hat pin she carried, keeping away from his eye, but just barely. Baby awoke and saw her, and Baby didn't cry. Sissy continued to scratch, always a little more deeply. The moonlight glittered on the jeweled end of the pin. Gummitch knew he faced a horror that could not be countered by running about or even spitting and screeching. Only magic could fight so obviously supernatural a manifestation, and this was also no time to think of consequences, no matter how clearly and bitterly etched they might appear to a mind intensely awake. He sprang up onto the other side of the crib, not uttering a sound, and fixed his golden eyes on Sissy's in the moonlight. Then he moved forward, straight at her evil face, stepping slowly, not swiftly, using his extraordinary knowledge of the properties of space to walk straight through her hand and arm as they flailed the hat pin at him. When his nose tip finally paused a fraction of an inch from hers, his eyes had not blinked once, and she could not look away. Then he unhesitatingly flung his spirit into her like a fistful of flaming arrows, and he worked the mirror magic. Sissy's moonlit face, feline and terrified, was in a sense the last thing that Gummitch, the real Gummitch kitten, ever saw in this world. For the next instant, he felt himself enfolded by the foul black blinding cloud of Sissy's spirit which his own had displaced. At the same time, he heard the little girl scream, very loudly, but even more distinctly, Mommy! That cry might have brought Kitty come here out of her grave, let alone from sleep merely deep or drugged. Within seconds, she was in the nursery, closely followed by old horsemeat, and she had caught up Sissy in her arms. And the little girl was articulating the wonderful word again and again, and miraculously following it with the command. There could be no doubt old horsemeat heard it too. Hold me tight! Then Baby finally dared to cry. The scratches on his cheek came to attention, and Gummitch, as he had known must happen, was banished to the basement amid cries of horror and loathing, chiefly from Kitty come here. The little cat did not mind. No basement would be one-tenth as dark as Sissy's spirit that now enshrouded him for always, hiding all the file drawers and the labels on all the folders, blotting out forever even the imagining of the scene of first coffee drinking and first speech. In a last intuition, before the animal blackness closed in utterly, Gummidge realized that the spirit, alas, is not the same thing as the consciousness, and that one may lose, sacrifice the first and still be burdened with the second. Old Horsemeat had seen the hat pin and hid it quickly from Kitty Come Here, 
and so he knew that the situation was not what it seemed, and that Gummitch was, at the very least, being made into a sort of scapegoat. He was quite apologetic when he brought the tin pans of food to the basement during the period of the little cat's exile. It was a comfort to Gummitch, albeit a small one. Gummitch told himself, in his new, black, halting manner of thinking, that after all, a cat's best friend is his man. From that night, Sissy never turned back in her development. Within two months, she had made three years' progress in speaking. She became an outstandingly bright, light-footed, high-spirited little girl. Although she never told anyone this, the moonlit nursery and Gummitch's magnified face were her first memories. Everything before that was inky blackness. She was always very nice to Gummitch in a careful sort of way. She could never stand to play the game Owl Eyes. After a few weeks, Kitty Come Here had forgotten her fears, and Gummitch once again had the run of the house. But by then, the transformation old horsemeat had always warned about had fully taken place. Gummitch was a kitten no longer, but an almost burly tom. In him it took the physical form not of sullenness or surliness, but an extreme dignity. He seemed at times rather like an old pirate, brooding on treasures he would never live to dig up, shores of adventure he would never reach. And sometimes when you looked into his yellow eyes, you felt that he had in him all the materials for the book Slid Eyes Look at Life, three or four volumes at least, although he would never write it. And that was natural when you come to think of it, for as Gummitch very well knew, bitterly well indeed, his fate was to be the only kitten in the world that did not grow up to be a man.